Hello, I'm Garni Barkajarian of the Pacific Neuroscience Institute and CNS member for more than 10 years. What I love most about being a member is access to cutting edge science and the opportunities that have advanced my career. I've also gained new colleagues and lifelong friends. Being a CNS member has been so rewarding. The value of membership cannot be defined by a number. Join me and the over 10,000 neurosurgeons who are making a difference in the world. Visit cns.org slash membership podcast today. Welcome to another episode of the CNS Controversies in Neurosurgery podcast. My co-host, Dr. Seth Oliveira, and I, Rashna Ali, are excited to hear our guest speaker today, Dr. Laura Massey. Dr. Massey is an assistant professor of neurosurgery at Allegheny Health. She is a fellowship-trained deformity spine surgeon with a focus on population health and outcome-based research. We're extremely excited to talk to her about deformity correction versus decompression for scoliosis. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Massey. Thank you for having me. So just to kickstart the conversation, tell us a little bit about the current landscape of scoliosis surgery and where is it heading? I think over the last uh, several years, one of the things that's been exciting um, as someone in training and then now moving into practice is that um, I think historically there has been kind of a split between the minimally invasive world, the open deformity world, and then people who just don't deal with those cases. And I think in training now, people are being exposed to a variety of those options. And so there may be someone that you learn from that's stronger in one of those areas than others. But at this point, you know, endoscopic interventions are newer and, and to our topic today about decompression situations, there are, there are a lot of advancements that I think will only become more relevant and applicable to the scoliosis world. There's a lot of um, patient outcome research and appropriateness, I think, is the real focus on most people's um, topics at this point, trying to find how to optimize these cases, who to do them on, and how to make them successful. Population and AI level stuff. Fantastic. So uh, can you summarize for us some of the evidence that supports decompression versus deformity correction, especially as it relates to, you know, ideal timing, the appropriate patient population, symptoms that play into decision making? Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head. I mean, a lot of this is really just related to who's the patient in front of you and what is the symptom that they're presenting with. You know, I think we look at populations of, of patients, mostly retrospectively, that have already undergone one type of these surgeries or not. And so generally, um, I think what helps me figure out what to do for the patient is kind of where they are in their uh, degenerative process. So if someone comes in in their 20s or 30s or 40s who is not necessarily an AIS patient, they are often coming with either a pure radiculopathy or some early degenerative changes. And those can often be managed either with a small decompression or a limited fusion or, or conservative management. Um, when people get into their older years, you know, 65 and up, those are the people that we usually consider for deformity correction unless there's been some kind of early degeneration or iatrogenic <laughs> contribution to that um, imbalance. And so it really depends who's walking in the door. You know, if you have an osteoporotic 67-year-old, you're not going to maybe jump to surgery in the next few months or year. You know, there's there's a lot involved in the decision-making that really has to do with 
um, modifiable and non-modifiable risk factors. So that's probably the first thing I'd start with is who's the patient, what's their age, and what symptom are they presenting with? So to your point of, um, you know, who's appropriate for decompression, the, you know, the patients I would think of for that are patients who present with either some signs of stenosis in a focal area, radiculopathy in a focal area, and essentially the ability to get in there and do a decompression largely based either on an indirect decompression technique like a lateral or uh, an ALIF or something like a hemilaminotomy for lateral recess stenosis or central stenosis. There was an interesting paper that I looked at before this that talked about um, kind of the, in, the um, impact of biomechanics on doing a, um, it was a finite ele element analysis on um, unilateral hemilaminotomy, bilateral hemilaminotomy, laminectomy, or control group. And so um, doing a unilateral or bilateral uh, laminotomy really didn't impact the uh, biomechanics nearly to the degree that an open laminectomy did. So that's some like a principle to keep in mind if you are moving towards doing a decompression alone for a really isolated finding. Um, you know, taking down the spinous process and the posterior ligamentous complex can have a big impact um, just in general in terms of producing instability over time. And that's what that paper showed um, in a non-scoliotic population. But I think that principle would apply even more. I think we've all also seen through our training patients who have maybe a little bit of a generous laminectomy develop a PARS defect. And so we learn that traditional rule of, you know, you're okay if you take a third of the medial facet. I don't know that that's necessarily true in someone whose biomechanical loading is not traditional. So um, some of those factors, you know, can be um, important to consider when you're, when you're looking at a patient who has some degree of scoliosis. And you've kind of jumped into, you know, something that we do want to delve into a little bit. You know, it is a controversies podcast. So how how is our traditional teaching um, incorrect or proving to be uh, somewhat incorrect and um, irrelevant at this juncture as we learn more and more about the biomechanics of the of the spine? Because a lot of surgeons will sometimes you know, steer the patients towards a larger surgery or a larger fusion by saying, hey, you know, if I do this little bit of decompression and whatnot, things are only going to get worse over time, which might be true, but isn't true from what you've told us in, in all cases, especially if you're mindful of what you're doing um, in terms of symptomatic relief and targeted decompressions. So tell us a little bit bit more about that. What what myths are we busting today about? <laughs> I, it's funny. I don't know that it, it's it's a kind of the same thing again. It's, you know, I think anyone who is um, absolute in their recommendations is probably going to be wrong, you know, some part of the time. And so it's really about tailoring the surgery to the person in front of you. You know, I said before that you can do a decompression. I would often do those in really young people or really old people who can't go through a deformity correction. And it may not be, you know, all of these surgeries are um, going to be part of a longer term care of the patient. And so it may be the right surgery for right now. And so, you know, someone who's not retired yet and doesn't want to commit to the recovery that a deformity correction would really require, 
um, they might be a person who's willing to go through what might be a temporizing measure for them with a variable degree of, of duration for them or durability for them. Patients who have, um, you know, especially if they have foraminal stenosis and the concavity of their curve, you can do a hemilaminotomy, but if they stand back up or a foraminotomy, even if they stand back up and that level collapses craniocaudally, that durability is going to be different than a patient who um, had, you know, a synovial cyst develop, you resect it, and hopefully it doesn't recur. Or um, this third kind of grouping that I haven't really touched on very much, patients who could undergo a limited fusion, fusion like a limited segment fusion. One of the, um, so I guess trying to be kind of algorithmic about this, when we see a patient, we often consider things like their age, their bone density, their cardiac status, their goals and preferences. And those are things that really play into whether or not they're appropriate yet for an, a bigger intervention. So if their bone density is, you know, uh, in the osteoporotic range, and a lot of data is coming out now uh, with using Hounsfield units on the CT as a potentially more accurate measure of the um, cancellous bone density within the vertebral body, uh, that's correlated with the degree of, or likelihood of screw, screw pull out at the top of your construct for a larger T10 to pelvis or T4 to pelvis. And so if someone is not at a point where they're likely to succeed from a surgery like that, it may be worth doing a year or two of anabolic bone agent treatment, um, at least six months maybe for someone with really profound osteoporosis, just to set them up in a better place. And so sometimes doing something like a laminotomy or a foraminotomy might buy them time and comfort, sometimes even a spinal cord stimulator trial <laughs> um, to see if they can find another temporizing measure that's smaller. And I think the biggest factor in all of this is whatever intervention someone might pick on the way to eventually going through a larger deformity correction, you know, the, the surgeon doing the temporizing surgery, whether that's this, you know, the deformity surgeon or another surgeon in the community, it would it's important to be mindful about how the level you're intervening at will play into the overall correction over time. So some of the yeah. limited fusion options, if it's involving the L4-5 or L5-S1 level, that's where we get a lot of the power to correct the overall sagittal alignment. And so if, um, you know, if those levels are kind of fused in kyphosis or fused flat, it becomes more difficult or fused coronally imbalanced or, or you know, just uh, locking in the, the fractional curve that the patient has, it can be more difficult to correct those over time and require a, a more invasive, you know, uh, pedicle subtraction, three-column osteotomy, rather than, um, you know, having the flexibility there to kind of move those those bones around to our favor with the overall deformity correction plan. You kind of already alluded to this, but um, I'm sure there's lots of patients who are asking you for the smallest surgery possible and, and sort of the converse of what you're just talking about, which patients or what, what imaging features um, make you nervous that someone who wants that small little surgery, really needs something bigger. What, what, what's the, the patient where you see something and you're saying, no, we got to go big. I think it's two, two factors. So um, if you have someone who would like something small, you could talk about doing maybe a more limited fusion, like a one level T lift or a one level A lift or something in someone like I was saying, who has that craniocaudal collapse. You know, if you think about it, the major curve in the, the thoracolumbar spine is usually facing one direction. And then at the bottom, there's a compensatory curve that we call the fractional curve, and that one's bending the opposite direction. And so often you'll get an L5 radiculopathy 
down at the bottom of the spine on the opposite side of what you think you would. And that's really classic for that compensatory curve. So if that unilateral radiculopathy is there, doing a targeted fusion there is something that I think could produce more durability for that patient. So sometimes it's a conversation of what is the smallest that will be durable. Um, and then factors like, and even I struggle with this, is how much does regular stenosis you know, contribute to sagittal posture, right? So if someone's really stenotic and neurogenically claudicating, how much of their, you know, their abnormal uh, forward head posture is related to that versus actual skeletal deformity. And so sometimes you can figure out those things by looking at the CAT scan and comparing that to the upright films, you know, the supine imaging versus upright. Um, and those are some things that I think if you're significantly out of sagittal alignment, you know, you can work on more neurologic features for people with a smaller intervention, but it may be kind of the writing on the wall that eventually to really change their posture, that would be something requiring the larger structural correction. So it's this long conversation. The other thing too, I mean, when you talk about who's appropriate for a deformity correction, it's that older age group, if they have optimized cardiac status, so with this, I'd make them do a stress test because no one can walk far enough to get angina who needs that surgery. And so um, they often benefit by undergoing a stress test preoperatively. And I've had some people fail it and then need to be treated for six months. So that's a six months you can also be treating bone density. And then more than anything, you know, these end up being kind of long-term relationships with these patients. They know, and you know, that this may not be their last surgery. Even the deformity correction may not be their last surgery. There's significant risks to that. And we've I think the the people who trained me and, and built this whole field have done an amazing job of mitigating those risks and really reducing them systematically with tethers and cement augmentation and, you know, very detailed analysis of the exact alignment parameters that should be achieved in relation to patient specific factors like their own pelvic incidents. There's a lot of detail that's, you know, kind of very intriguing to those of us who love this world in the way that you guys were talking about stimulators before I got on. But um, I think it's uh, the things that are important to the average person learning this in residency or interested in this, you know, in terms of the patient in front of them and what should they do and what should they pass on. I think it's really about, can you produce a neurologic improvement right now for this patient? Is there an isolated feature like a one level slip or a, you know, um, you know, coronal imbalance in one specific area that you can address while positively impacting, or at least not negatively impacting their overall alignment. And then I think, you know, to the point that I don't do await craniotomies anymore, there's probably a, a role for, you know, people who make this their interest, focusing on those larger surgeries. Um, you know, it's difficult to have your staff and the nursing and the OR all geared up for these type of surgeries and um, the kind of quality around them and the cost around them really skyrockets or, you know, plummets or skyrockets, I should say, uh, respectively when things don't, don't go smoothly the first time. And so revising those surgeries becomes more and more complicated, but I think we all know that's still something that happens. So what really is the impact um, on healthcare costs when we talk about um, deformity surgery versus just targeting, as you said, the, the, the most uh, 
intrusive neurological symptom because like you said the the levels that are most commonly operated on are l4551 and if if a general neurosurgeon um, out in the community ends up working at these levels produces temporary relief buys the patient a little bit more time is is that really cost effective or should we be asking a lot of these general neurosurgeons to refer these patients out to um, deformity specialists right from the get-go so a, a better long-term plan can be can be created you know i think it's it's hard with everything we do because we can't randomize patients to themselves <laughs> to know how well they would do with one treatment or the other um, obviously, you know, the, the healthcare costs or the, you know, the hospital costs around or inpatient charges with a, an open deformity or somewhere around, you know, several hundred thousand dollars. Um, and with that, you can imagine that the, you know, same day laminotomy, <laughs> I don't know the exact, uh, billing anymore for that, but you can imagine that would be significantly lower. So I'm sure if you produce a significant healthcare quality of life improvement with, the laminotomy or, or, you know, microdiscectomy or one level fusion, the, the cost would be um, infinitesimally <laughs> less, you know, for those patients undergoing the smaller surgery. Um, from what I've read previously, the likelihood of having the cost per healthcare quality uh, measure of life, the quality for uh, deformity surgeries is negated once they need a reoperation. And so really trying to get that right, if if it seems like that's what it's going to take, I think is reasonable. However, you know, most patients aren't ready to commit to that, especially in their, you know, middle-aged years when they're busy. And so if, um, I don't think that there's a downside to potentially doing a smaller intervention first and buying them significant time. So I think the really only downside would be is if the intervention you're doing really doesn't have a chance to succeed, then it's probably worth just doing the, you know, whatever it takes, whether that's a small fusion instead of a laminectomy or a, you know, or really being driven by their symptoms. You know, if they can't stand and wash their own dishes or walk around the store without a cart, that's a very different situation than I picked up a couch and now I have this leg pain, you know, or, you know, some uh, variation on that. So in terms of costs, um, really there's, there's such a high hospital charge length of stay. Um, you know, it's kind of the inverse of a overnight craniotomy. That's the highest profit margin for the hospital. So, um, I think that it's not only like related to cost important for us to consider that it's really related to the patient's ability to, to heal from it and, and physiologically and psychologically handle it. You know, it's, um, it's also important for them to understand what the larger deformity construct can do for them and how it will limit them. Because I think we talk about, you know, how great it is that, you know, this x-ray versus that x-ray, <laughs> we all pat ourselves on the back and show them off at meetings. But if the patient doesn't understand that they're not really going to be able to twist and wipe their own butt, sometimes it's, that's a um, rude awakening postoperatively. So there's a lot of counseling towards that end, you know, uh, getting a pedicure for the rest of your life, which most people don't mind, <laughs> things like that, that, um, you know, if their goal is to be able to continue to be athletic and hike Machu Picchu, it's sometimes important to really have a heart-to-heart -heart discussion about what 
the cost per quality benefit would be to that person. You know, if they want to walk into the stadium and watch their kid compete at, you know, a track event or a musical or something, they can do that. They should be able to do that afterwards. That's a realistic goal. But, um, you know, and there's always people pushing the limits and stuff, but the, the trade-off for being upright and the lack of flexibility is really meaningful. And so I think patients need to be cautioned about that and how it will affect you know, what they do, if they're still working, what they're able to do as they age. No, that's, that's incredibly important, especially, you know, when people are living longer, when healthcare access is becoming harder and harder to achieve and um, subspecialty silos are created. If you, if you don't end up with, with the right surgeon, you, you can end up in a world of harm. So incredibly, incredibly important to understand those, those nuances. Uh, I think like too, said, it's not, you know, it's not to say that if someone hasn't made this a formal part of their training with a fellowship or um, that there, it's not possible to add this to your practice. I think just like anything we do over time, the fields evolve. And so if someone is in a community where they're, where it's just not feasible for people to go hours away for, for specific cases, or especially, you know, what we're really talking about today is adult degenerative scoliosis. This is not pediatric neuromuscular things that are really best handled in pediatric specialty centers. You know, I think there are some of the data shows that things like, um, you know, you don't end a long segment fusion at S1, um, you know, don't like a T10 to S1 is, is not good. Go to the pelvis. Um, uh, things like going from S1 to the apex of the curve is, is just going to advance, you know, uh, speed up deterioration at that level. Um, I think those are principles that anyone, anywhere that becomes kind of the go-to person in their community can, you know, can understand. And there's so much education, both through CNS and all around our specialty nowadays, that I think people really can add those tools to their tool belt, especially if they are someone in a um, setting where people experience this issue, but are maybe not willing to go very far to have it treated. Those might also be people who are not willing to have, you know, the extremely large fusion corrections that, you know, if they happened to become symptomatic while on vacation in one of our major metropolitan areas would be offered. So um, I think, you know, or, or would want, so it's, um, it's, I think, again, it just all goes back to the patient it's the same way that the MIS versus open debate has transformed over time. You know, there, it used to be these two very um, binary algorithms. You know, if you measured a certain degree of um, sagittal imbalance and your curvature was a certain, uh, you know, PIL mismatch was a certain degree, you, you would be based on this algorithm siloed into one or the other. And now the MISDEF2 algorithm from a couple of years ago really helps us understand that there are patients who are kind of right in the middle. There are patients that are truly only really appropriate for open deformity. There are also patients who are definitely appropriate for a completely minimally invasive approach. But I think over time, our groups have really merged and there are a lot of people doing hybrid constructs that might involve you know, an ALIF at the bottom, potentially some laterals in the middle of the lumbar spine, and then ultimately going in posteriorly, potentially having to do significantly less work on the day that you take them for the posterior approach which really speeds up their recovery. You know, they're in the hospital. Sometimes I'll do the A-lifts at 4.5 and 5.1 on a Monday, bring them back on a Thursday to do the posterior, but it's six hours instead of 10 or something. And so that can really um, improve their speed of recovery, even if their hospital stay might not look that different. 
Is that typically done in uh, one hospitalization or you ever do that in a staged approach? I mean, we still call it staged. Um, I've had a conversation with a few patients where, you know, we were kind of, you know, younger people that are still relatively healthy, you you give them that correction and they can relax their thoracic spine a little bit. And so there are a couple of people that have been right on the cusp of me feeling like, you know, supine, they definitely would correct out without that much um, bony osteotomy work other than just facet osteotomies. And so I've, we've had that conversation where we could do that and not even plan the second surgery within the same hospital stay necessarily. But um, generally I say, you know, even if we are planning it, you still want to get standing films between the two um, surgeries. So you, you can use the planning software now and, and help, you know, show the patients based on their own scoliosis x-rays. You know, there are several planning softwares that are free to use and you can pretend to put an ALIF in and it cracks the x-ray and shows you how far it's going to correct for people. There's a lot of um, AI work being done with custom rods that, and, and, you know, patient individual pre and post x-rays that can help you understand exactly how much correction you get with a 20 degree cage. Do you get 20 degrees or 25 or not 20? <laughs> and so that helps you kind of know in your own hands, how likely am I to get the correction that's needed with any one of these techniques or in combination. And so sometimes I'll use that software and show the patients, you know, the options and say, okay, you know, this ALIF will take you, you know, a very sh short amount of time to recover from in comparison to some of the other options. And, you know, you will get to a point that is several years prior in terms of how hard you're working to stand up. Would that be okay with you for now? And then, you know, when you retire, we could do the rest or, you know, while you're still recovering, if this isn't good enough, bring you back for that. But usually it's a planned um, single hospitalization. Fantastic. Well, thank you, Dr. Massey, for this phenomenal discussion and to our listeners for tuning in for this podcast. Please follow us on social media at Rushnali6, at Seth Oliveira, and at CNS Update for upcoming podcast episodes and other educational material. Have a great night.